Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to another episode of Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer, co-host, mortal sports enemy, Chris Morales, <laughs> in the house. Yes, here I am. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number. And i got to interrupt my intro to say, last week I was... one. Because because you distracted me with that what was it that uh, X Files thing yeah. <laughs> yeah. I only said six four six five six four is the number. Okay, <laughs> I didn't finish the last four digits. All right, so no one would have been so, able to get in. So on that stop one. distracting me during the intro. All okay, right. if you want to listen to our show live, go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash ocg radio. That's blogtalkradio forward slash ocg radio or you can call us, right, on our listening line, 646-564-9909, if there is no other means to listen to the show. you got to make it happen. Right. Go Warriors. Okay, you need to stop it. <laughs> Especially now that i found out that the Niners are looking to steal, steal my team's pick yes. in the draft. Are we going to have a what, – what day of the week is the draft? Draft is on – no, the first day of the oh, draft. Friday. Is, sure, it's not Thursday. Thursday. Thursday or Friday. I think okay, it's Thursday. so that Tuesday we'll have to have a special draft show edition. Our, our grading, our grades. Just like we did uh, a free, then we we did a free agency. Yeah, we did. Show, so we have to do a, a draft show edition. Sounds good to me. All right, special show today on a number of fronts. Uh, we have another personal story segment. Uh, this story, uh, the success story, that is Ken Lubin. Ken Lubin is a graduate of Daytop from way back, way, 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 way back there, 1970. We gave him a shout-out, I believe, a couple of weeks ago when he uh, celebrated his 45th anniversary That's right. of uh, sobriety. Um, so we want to bring him on today to uh, talk about 
his story uh, and what it was like back there, way back there in uh, in Daytop history. Ken Lubin, are you there? Welcome to Roachon Recovery. Yes, I am. How are you doing, Ken? Um, a lot better than that, but I, you know, I'm recovering. I understand that you had a a, a very recent um, diagnosis. Do you want to talk a little bit about that for our audience? Sure. I was recently diagnosed with SP, PSP, which is a form of uh, Parkinson's disease, which is uncurable and really is not much knowledge of it other than it just strikes out of the blue. Okay. And well, what's coming through this is I would like to uh, first thank you for having me on and explaining to the audience I don't know how many other ex-addicts or recovering addicts, as you, as you say, have come down with any premature or mature illnesses such as this, but... Uh, the thing that kept me going is my memories of day up that I can overcome drug addiction with the help of Roxycolation, Felix Aurelia, and of course my parents, that uh, I will survive this as long as I can, and I'm not going to give in to it. That's great. That's great to hear, Ken. That's great to hear. So let's get right to it. Uh how did you end up going into Daytop? Well, I uh, started my recovery process. Believe it or not, they I came back from Woodstock in New York. I went there a week early just to see what was going on. And somehow got put to work uh, right across the road from Woodstock in Bethel, New York, was Daytop Village. Correct. When I came home, I was surprised they paid me, and checks actually cleared. And my father was a little upset that I was gone for like 10 days without a phone call. And I heard him crying that evening. What is he going to do with me? It seems they found my works and my paraphernalia while I was away. And I decided to go to the Hunting Journal to detox. Even though I thought I really didn't need detox, I said yes. Okay. I could see I was really going to fail me a bot. While I was in detox, they introduced me to somebody from Daytop. Then they even just span. We used to have span units throughout the city, which was storefronts. And one of the people I met there was Michael Bosch. Michael Bosch. Michael, yes. Michael was spiritual leader. That's right. Of Daytop. I was very surprised. I remember him. And, yeah, and while cleaning the bathrooms, all of a sudden one day they said to me, come with the director's office. So I went. And next thing I was on my way to Swan Lake. Wow. With a one-way ticket to Swan Lake. And, of course, I arrived in Liberty, New York, and there was a bus waiting for me to take me to the facility. And next thing I knew, I was being interviewed 
if it's sitting on a wooden chair for a few, quite a few hours. Uh, while I was sitting there, it started to snow. Where's I, where's I gonna go? So I figured I would play the game. I tell Vinny the mail where they interview, and he said to me, you're very sincere about coming to Daytop. Give me your shoes. And that was to me was crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody gets in my shoes while it's snowing outside. There's three feet of snow. And there to when the interview started getting all the case. And as usual, the old day hop, they broke me down with right. innuendos about my manhood, about my sexuality, about everything. They threw it. Right. And I broke. And I also figured I had no way getting home, so I come from Queens, New York, that I would give in to it. And that's how it actually began. So it's funny you mentioned the name Michael Bosch, who who was the spiritual leader within within Daytop. I used to always say he had the best job in Daytop. Um, so you're in Swan Lake. You survived your initial interview. How long did you spend up at uh, at the lake? I was at Swan Lake approximately three months. Okay. In the old days, we had to earn everything: a letter, mm-hmm. a phone call. A visit home, you know, you know, everything had to be earned by showing that you were committed to the top style. So, three months into the program, they saw something in me, and they sent me down to 14th Street to work for Charlie Devlin at Roxy College in the Office of Director of Program. And I used to go see Ed Hammock during midday. It was like it was, it was like I, I was meant to be, and they were grooming me to be something more than I was. Or what right. they were even had impressions to put upon me. You know, I went through the service. You know, what's the called the, the service corps. I went through with dishpan. I went through the kitchen, and three months. I also knew how to type, which was quite, and I had a license. And in those days, people might have a misimpression of they have, but they thought was 99% white, middle-class people. Mm-hmm. Not too many Jewish people such myself, right. but they were, it was all white. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Everybody thinks that affects only... Unfortunately, the low class was reference Stuyvesant or Harlem or something like that. But that's right. not the, that was the case then. Right. So the my senior, may he rest in peace, grabbed down to me, and I became his Jewish little friend. <laughs> I'll never forget as long as I live. <laughs> <laughs> he he took places I never thought they was not international in those right. days. Right. We had two facilities, first Swan Lake, 14th Street, and Staten Island. Right. 
And as we grew, I grew with it. Mm-hmm. I was sent to North Carolina to start a division of VETAP. It was called right. Open House. And I started, I went to court with local residents. Now, me being from an upper middle class white family, I didn't even know what a black person looked like. Mm-hmm. Black to me was the way you claimed to clean my house three times a week. Mm-hmm. And now I'm representing in court black people to get them paroled to daytop or open mm-hmm. house. And I was in for a shock as far as seeing the world around me that it was true the way they were treated, the way there was still discrimination in the South. And I was presented with something I wasn't ready for. You know, I was a long-haired Yankee from New York. Right, right. In, If they knew I was Jewish, they probably right. would all lynch me. I got a few phone calls on a weekly television show on drug addiction in Charlotte, North Carolina, in those days. I got a few calls threatening me to run me out of town. So they decided to pull me out. In fear for me more than anything else. Right. And replace me with somebody else. That might be more of a blend. Right. So from there, I started that program up there. And I can remember starting Parksville. Mm-hmm. It was still inhabited by residents that paid you know, Parksville people for the you know, vacation. And I mm-hmm. went up there with a handful of residents. They were very nice to us. Very, very nice. I met with Warner Middle who is an old-time board member and one of the originals of Dayhub. And I set up an all delivery and food deliveries and so on and such forth. And then residents came a few weeks later to the, uh, inhabit the facility. And here was just me and, like, four other residents. How long did I it take them to fill? How long did it take them to fill Parksville? Our fields filled immediately. Wow. You know, and that, it could have been, we could have actually opened more if the funding was there. Okay. Because there were a lot of empty rooms in one of the wings. Okay. Which we want to make for staff living. And there was there was a, one building that was left empty when I left because of, I would assume, it was funding. I didn't mm-hmm. get into the particulars of what went on, you know, behind the thing. I was, what's the word, uh, clinical, clinical, I'm sorry about that. Clinical. Uh, go ahead. You, you just, you focus just on the clinical side. Right. Right, At right. At that point. Okay. I decided when I went back to 14th Street that I was adapting a lot of the habits of articles. So I asked 
before is there anything else like they do? And they put me on the administrative side of the ATAP. Okay. I I uh I opened the facility in Trenton, New Jersey. Okay. Where I used to run groups at the uh state farm so when the you know, she me even today, how do I go to Clinton State Farm for when? I said, uh, I didn't find the time at all. That you would, they, you would make it, and because it was male deprived, I didn't feel danger. But I went a few times to get grants from the state. It was a joke. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to really know us at this point. At this point. There was some pressure put on because we were in New York, and they would, I felt like I was being appeased. Right. So I went back to New York, which I did, and from there I was told that 14th Street was closing. And we obtained the facility at 40th Street. I forgot for 16 million, I don't know, it was... But the place was disheveled. I think we sold more of the brass for the old brass that we <laughs> found in the building to maintain the building. Well, yeah, can, so can, sure, yeah. Can, can at some point they got the brass back because later in the later years in the eighties and nineties the brass the brass was back on the stairways and in, in, in the you know in the building so. It was a beautiful facility. They really did yes. a lot of work. Yes. And all the work was initially done by the president. Right. We had one builder, that John. He was a builder. Uh, with the guy, Vinny, who knew plumbing. So all the plumbing and everything was done by the residents. We slowly built this up. To the point where it became the showcase that it would be and became as the years grew. I was totally shocked when I heard it was sold. I felt that uh, they should have avoided it if they could, but then again, I was not familiar with the inner workings of bankruptcy and everything that they have went through. But it was totally different. Even the culture behind Datehub changed over the years when it became more professional. When I went through Datehub, we were run and solely by drug acts. Let me ask Ken. Let me ask you this question: at, So, at what? So, what point did you did you leave your stop being involved with uh, Datehub? Well, I was always involved. It, it did give. It did give me my life back. Right. It was, it was, you, was there was there a point where you stopped working for Daytop? Yes. I wanted to resign. I spoke to Charlie Devler. I said, Charlie, I'm doing the job of three people. I was just married. Thanks to Daytop. And I would like a race. Mm-hmm. Now, we had lines 
that were allocated for certain things, mm-hmm. and mine was being used. Or there was no money on the line for assistant administrator. I figured they can't not re- you know, give me a raise or at least appease me with something because they didn't even know, as I thought, like where the money was. Right. My first National City Bank, you know, safe deposit box was or anything. And all they did was turn around and say, we're sorry they had the living. It was 73, 74. Well, they was asked me to stay an extra week to turn over all my so-called knowledge or whatever of where things were or how things were run. And I wound up in the home business, which, don't get me wrong, turned out good to me. Right, right. You know, I'm retired 14 years already. And I'm only okay. 65. Okay. Uh, yes. Ken, okay, let me just, Ken, Ken. Let me just, uh, just so our audience understands. So you, you left Daytop in approximately 1974 as an employee, and you went into the hardware business, and you were very successful. Um, and you've been retired for now, did you say 12 years, 15 years? About 15 years. 15, 14, okay. 15 years. Okay. Very good. Uh, I was totally so you, shocked. You, re, you oh, wait a second. You retired at age fifty. I'm sorry. You retired at age fifty. Yeah. I wow. uh, pulled, pulled pulled the vertebrae in my neck. Oh, okay. So I had no choice but to retire. Okay. But I worked for Dwayne Reed and uh, Strauss Brothers in between. As a troubleshooter. Okay. Yeah, you know, I'm looking for theft, employee theft, and things like that. I was trained then. And Daytop gave me the gumption to go out and look at what was around. Right. I got tired of seeing professionals be more than I even was assistant administrator. They brought in somebody called Yasa. He was the administrator of Ahab, and he knew what he was doing. I remember when we had procurement, we used to beg for food every April because there was no food for the residents. We ate ravioli or blitzes. We ate blitzes for a month. Blitzes was cheese wrapped dough, and it was sour cream. See, what you're talking about, Ken, the people, see, this is why I call the uh, the 80s and the, and, and the certain parts of the 90s the golden era of Daytop, because I, none of us could think of what it was like back in the early days. When you, Now, you're talking about how you guys had to go out and literally beg for food, or you spent, you ate the same thing for a month. You know, we couldn't have conceived that. We couldn't. We couldn't have believed that because that's not what we experienced. We we when we, when we went up there, it was like being in a luxury resort. That that was like our experience. The way the place looked. 
But it wasn't until we started learning the history of the people who came in the 60s and the early 70s who kind of really built the place to what we are now we're now enjoying that we kind of got, you know, an understanding and, and, a, and a renewed appreciation. You know what true, I'm saying? True. So it's, it's, it's you guys who did it. Yes, I, which is one of the reasons why I was so proud of what we did. Right. And I saw it slipping away. Right. I saw professionals. I saw people with degrees. Uh, Ed Hammond was a great administrator of NASAP. He was, besides being on a pro board, you know, we gave so much to NASAP that we didn't care. I can remember when they did away with aspartame. I think it's one of the aspartame and sweetener in uh soda. Right. Guess who got it all? We got it. We had cases and cases and cases of this diet soda. There was lots of curtis <laughs> and they couldn't sell it anymore. So when I make it instead of a complete write-off, you know, donate it to Daytop. Right, right, right. So we got it. We had right. cola coming up the wazoo. Right. Our cigarettes were in there. No, this one just smoking was allowed. Right. Our cigarettes were donated or we bought from LM, P. Lordi, a dwarf brand cigarette. Can you, can you imagine that today? Can you imagine that happening today? No, I couldn't. No, absolutely not. Let me ask you this, Ken. Let me let me ask you this. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, so even after you left Daytop and you went to work in in the hardware industry, you said you stayed connected with Daytop. How how did you stay connected? What what were you doing, or were you, were you part of the family association? How did you stay connected? Well, I used to go at speaking engagements. Okay. And represent and represent Daytop through the Queens Out Outreach, Jerry Griffin, okay. and rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, would bring me to uh, meetings at the, uh, what's it called again, the uh, Queen District Attorney for gangs right. and drugs in Rikers Island. And right. I also extended myself a number of times to speak on behalf to the residents about the history. Right. And I felt the history, history like you say, is very strong. Right. You know, and the, most people don't know that Daytop was not always a, quote, country club. Like when I got my GED, yeah, we had one teacher, Cy Halpern was the teacher. I don't right. know if I should mention less names on it. But, you know, before it became a whole institute of learning. Right. Of getting uh, K-Sex. There's no such thing as that. Right. In fact, I wrote a large portion of the K-Sex exam. And when I called up and asked, do I get any credit for that? <laughs> I was told no. I was going to go back for uh, I was thinking of retiring from the hardware business. 
Who's better than me to form the Kesach? Would it be me? That's funny. But it didn't happen that way. Right. I was somewhat, I don't know why, if I don't know if I took it personal or what. You know, I offered myself a day to have all I asked in me in response to my wanting to give back was pay my expenses. You right, say you right. can't afford to pay me as a consultant. If they go to Westchester, I got to go over two bridges, pay it to turn down. You so know. Did they, did they end up paying your expenses? No, I did. Okay. I went to Westchester, Westchester once. Okay. And I paid the expenses. I felt that it was the least I could do. I didn't need it. I, you know, didn't change my lifestyle one bit or another. But if I was going to do it on a regular basis. That's right. what I want to. So, you so know, can, I spread the word. I've always right. had Beethoven strong in my heart. Right. Every time I remember when somebody would die, uh, unfortunately, there were actually collisions on this with that. Uh, family association at dinner, I would go. I felt it was important for me to stay in touch right. with Well, let me ask yeah, you well, something, Ken, or, or actually make a statement just in closing so we can wrap this up. But when you started, when we started talking today, one of the things you stated was that <clears throat> even though that you came down, you had this recent diagnosis of this rare form of Parkinson's, you said that you're going to do the best you can to fight it the best way you can. And then you also said during the course of our interview that in going in going through Daytop, it kind of gave you a strength that you didn't know that you had to accomplish some of the things that you've had. And I am guessing that that same strength that you learned or developed while you were in Daytop and after Daytop and keeping Daytop close to your heart in the later years – you're going to use that same strength to fight through um, this illness uh, that you have. Am I correct in stating that? Yes, you are. Because Good. I was ready. I was ready to give up when I first heard the diagnosis. I went into a very deep depression before I contacted you originally. This shows right. you that it's only been like a month, right. maybe a little longer. I was ready to give up. Wow. And that's why I dedicate this to Roxy, Collegian, Felix Aurelia. Because every time I wanted to leave Daytop, for whatever reason, at the beginning, towards the end, you know, my dear career, these are people I would go to as Roxy and Felix Aurelia. Right. And to refer advice. You know, hundreds of other people. Hardy Rosenthal, Mark Tindrup. I can name people who stayed that in my mind. I'd be mm-hmm. here forever. Mm-hmm. And I managed to overcome this. I was right. a garbage belly. I was I was a heroin addict. I was a heroin addict. But my mindset was I was we called it a garbage belly. Right. I would take anything put in front of me. Not right. knowing 
I would take a needle out of a deceased person and shove it in my arm. And I hope I still didn't feel the same way. Wow. Or, you know, and to the point, it was to the point that Ben Hop gave me something. I have three beautiful children. I have my second marriage. You know, I've been retired 15 years or so. You know, I have nothing to be feel bad about. Good. I had a good job at that up. I made money. I gave back. And I'm still willing to give back. When, once I overcome this, or fight through what I'm going through now, personally. And they don't know if it's drug-related, if it's because I use drugs or not. Right. In the 60s and 70s. And I'm telling right. you, Woodstock... We use drugs. Right. Yeah. Well, well, Ken, I want to say uh, I really uh, appreciate you being willing to come on and um, share your story with us. Um, and I, I really appreciate you being willing to come on, even though you know you're struggling with this illness, struggling to talk through it, um, and still being willing to come on the air and uh, share your story. That takes a lot of uh, that. That takes a lot of that old daytop strength. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you very much for coming on with us. Um, I know we we, we spoke um, privately uh, last week, and so we wanted to get somebody on who was from a different era to give us their perspective. And you have done a great job of doing that. So I want to thank you for that. And of course, I want to thank you. I think it's long overdue when you were doing. I feel that the world, I can't even say the, the, the city or the state anymore, should know about what has happened. How we're having an epidemic in New York of heroin, which is cheaper than anything else. And they're closing up places such as they've happened. Right. For what reason, I do not know. And I think uh, to allow this to happen, it's a sin. It really is. And if I right. give back, it's you or anybody that's out there, if they can understand me, I am willing to do what I have to do or what I feel has to be done on behalf of ex-addicts or recovering addicts. You know, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to persevere through it. You know, I need something to be involved in. We we agree with that 100%, Ken. So we want to thank you again um, for coming on, and hopefully uh, you'll stay in touch. You'll continue to listen, and, uh, of course, we'll we'll be in touch uh, on our through our Facebook page. So, Ken Lubin. Thank you, very, thank you, very, thank you for thank having you. me. You're very welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Ken Lubin, uh, a graduate from 1970 from Daytop. Um, and, you know, it was brave of him to come on when we spoke last week. He was uh, concerned about being able to be understood because the 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 illness that he was diagnosed with not too long ago was affecting his speech, obviously. 
Um, so he was concerned on whether or not, you know, how would he sound and whether or not would be able to understand it. I said, don't worry about that. Right. Um, you know, I understood him okay during our conversation, and I said, you know, we'll help you through the process and, you know, and, and let the audience know if there's anything that we could help, you know, right. trans, in, interpret or translate or what have you. But I think he did a fantastic job. Oh, yeah. You know, on his own um, for what he's uh, struggling with. So we got to give him super kudos for his bravery and his strength for just pushing through it. Yeah, absolutely. I I think he, like you said, it takes a tremendous amount of courage mm-hmm. to uh, come on um, and, and kind of face that fear. That's mm-hmm. what it sounds like. He was maybe a little uh, anxious, but went ahead and did it anyway. And I think more so than anything, that speaks to exactly how he was describing himself as a person, Mm -hmm. an individual that really genuinely feels a strong desire and need to give back Mm -hmm. to want to help. And if this is a platform with which he can do that, he's willing to overcome his own fears in order to do so. Mm -hmm. And that says pretty much all you need to know about him. If you've never met the guy, I think that's awesome. So, so quick recap, he went into uh, Daytop in uh, 1969, somewhere somewhere around there after Woodstock, 68, 69. His father asked him to go into D. He was gone for like 10 days, and when he got home, his father was very upset, and his father asked him to go into detox. He went into detox while he was in detox. Uh, Mike Bosch, who was uh, the spiritual, quote-unquote, leader in Daytop, <clears throat> and Mike Bosch was up at Swan Lake when I was there. Drove a Harley. Not, no, I'm sorry, I said drove a Harley. Rode a Harley. There you go. Um, and we always said he had the greatest job in Daytop because other than being a spiritual, I don't know what, he, what else he did. He was just <laughs> hanging out, you know? <laughs> That's um, it. But um, stayed up at Swan Lake for only three months and then went back to the city. It worked for the organization for a while. X4 raise was thoroughly denied. <laughs> Uh, but he, you know, he said he got married, and I guess you know, starting a family, what have you, and obviously needs needed money. Um, and so he went into another field and was ended up being very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but still stayed connected with Daytop by going on speaking engagements and giving back. Uh, he said he was invited numerous times to go to the Queen's Outreach by Jerry Griffin, the late Jerry Griffin. Um, so. He he's done you know he's done and still doing his due. I want to know what Daytop's doing taking people's shoes in the snow. That back well, in yeah, back that in was, the late sixties. Come was, on, man. That was you know that, that was old old school you know <laughs> old old school. And just checking to see you know how how much were you how willing? Committed how committed are you? How, how much you know, how how serious are you at getting help? You know you willing to give up your sneakers and and you, so you're you're asked this question. You're looking out the window and you see it's three feet of snow <laughs> and you're like, you know which one should I do? But so he said he gave him up. He gave him up. So that tells you. All right. So that was uh, the success story that is Ken Lubin. Why don't we take a uh, quick break and we're going to come back and we're going to touch on our topic uh, for at least, we're going to try and go 20, 25 minutes at least on our topic today. Sounds good. All right. The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, 
two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us, and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted. Welcome back to Roach on Recovery. Uh, 646-564-9909 is the number. Our topic today, self-esteem and self-confidence. Getting it and keeping it. That's it. Couldn't have picked a better one after the guest we just had on. Yep. So I'm going to do this like in seminar format. Like I used to do. Shall I Shall I sit on a monad during this? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure our East Coast contingent knows what that word is, because I had no really? idea what that word is until I came out to California. I'm like, what is a monad? Spelled like M-O-N-A-D, by the way. It is not in the dictionary, I believe. It is, I want it, it to is, say it's a military term, right? Might, no, I have no idea. So I haven't, I've never heard it until I came out here. And it said, <laughs> everyone on a monad said, what's a monad? Be quiet. Don't say a word. Yeah, you sit on a monad during the seminar until I ask you a question. That's right. <laughs> um, self-confidence and self-esteem. How do we get it? How do we keep it? Ultimately, everything can be traced back to how a person feels about themselves, what they do, how they live, you know, what they talk about. Almost everything in your life, if they break it down to the very, very, very nitty-gritty, and look at everything you've done, how you've done it, how you've gone about living, speaks to how you feel about yourself. And the two words are always used together when it comes to how a person feels about themselves is self-esteem and self-confidence, something a person needs in order to succeed in, in anything, anything, any aspect of whatever it is that they may be doing. If you're going to repair a broken door, you need to have the self-confidence and the self-esteem and your ability to get it done. So it applies across the board. But we're just talking about recovery here and dealing with addicts. Let's start off with a simple fact. People walking in the door, we know that one of the things that they're suffering from is a lack of self-esteem and self-confidence. And so we know that when that same person walks out of the door, we want them to walk out with either one of two things, either a heightened sense of self-esteem or self-confidence in comparison to when they walked in, or if they don't have a heightened sense, and I would personally not recommend that, and I would work very hard as a counselor to make sure that is not the case, but if, just to cover the bases, that the person knows how to go about increasing their sense of confidence and their sense of 
self-esteem. So one or the other must be in play. So at the very least, the person, if they have not done the necessary things while in the treatment setting to start that process and start building the self-esteem and self-confidence, that they know what they need to do. And once you know what you need to do to accomplish something, it's set on you. It's not on anybody else. You've been given the tools. You've been given the knowledge. Now you have to put it into action, put it into play. So people have walked around the halls of treatment settings and treatment environments, and you hear people talking about, you know, they have little, when 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 we're when they're questioned on behavior, certain attitudes they may have, and so on and so forth. We get down to the end result of. I did this why I did this ultimately because I didn't feel good about myself. That's usually the end answer that we we try and get to because your actions actually speak before you do. But you have to go through this process, this internal process of coming to that conclusion with help and assistance externally, of course. But I want to hear you. So if I'm counseling you, I want to hear as as we go through step by step, we might be talking about a particular behavior you engaged in during your addiction. And I might be asking you, well, why did you do that? How did you, you know, come to make that decision? I ultimately want to get underneath that and get to the point where you can acknowledge and see that that's descriptive of a person who doesn't feel good about who they are. That's why they would make a decision like that. That's why they would engage in behavior like that. That's why they would, you know, speak that way, et cetera, et cetera. I remember a long time ago, way, 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 way back, pre, pre-knowing my wife. I have to make that clear because I know she's listening. That's a long time ago, huh? When I got into an argument with a female friend who, at the time, I had started smoking marijuana, And she said to me, she had the nerve to say to me, you know, my mother says that people who smoke smoke marijuana or generally get high have psychological problems. (laughs) Boy, did I get offended at that and argued that point to the hilt. I argued it outside and in visiting in her mother's residence, Argued it in the living room. Now, I know that her mother, it was in the kitchen, could hear the argument. I just felt so offended that she would say to me, well, because you're doing this, you have psychological problems. Now, keep in mind back then, you know, if you don't know the definition of psychological problems and the the wide space that's in between that word, you know what I mean, you might just have your own definition. So when I heard psychological problems, oh, what are you saying, I'm crazy? You know, because I'm smoking marijuana. Right. And so I had to defend myself because I, I knew I wasn't crazy. Well, obviously, once I entered Daytop. <laughs> they said to you, upon your eye, had, eye yeah, you got psychological I problems. I had to <laughs> come to the conclusion and realization that, in fact, she was correct. Of course, anyone who does abuse drugs... And you you can even try and make the argument. We're not going to do that today. I'm just saying that anyone who uses substances that alter the mind or the mood has psychological problems. 
but we'll just stick to abuse t- for today's sake, for argument's sake. I had to uh, uh, realize that and say, wow, she was right. Her mother was right. You know, didn't mean I was crazy. It just meant, you know, I had to look at, well, what are the reasons why you, A, started using, B, continued to use, use three, engaged in the behavior, associated behaviors that you did, et cetera, et cetera. I had to take a honest look. Remember we talked about last week, a person asks, you know, why is it so hard to take a, you know, do the fourth step and take a personal right. inventory? Well, I had to do that. And everyone has to do that who's, you know, entering the recovery realm because, you got to find out, really, who who are you at that moment in time? Right. You know, or not only that moment in time, but who were you back during the addictive life? So you can get a sense of, okay, that's who I am, and this is what I need to do differently to become who I may aspire to become. Obviously, something vastly different. So the question then became, or the question becomes, all right, so... However you want to describe it, I have these, you know, I made bad decisions. I didn't feel good about myself as a result or because of. How do I change that around? How do I start the process of feeling good about myself? How do I start the process of building self-esteem and self-confidence? Well, many thought the answer was complex, that the answer was written in the uh, the the uh, the the encyclopedias of rocket science. <laughs> right, right. You know. Well, no, the answer is not complex. The answer is actually very simple, and it's one of the reasons why we always say there's a method to the madness of why the treatment setting is designed, especially in residential, why it's designed the way it is. You know people walking in the door are coming in at their lowest low. Now, back in the day, you mentioned the I&I. And the I&I used to beat people up. And basically, it was breaking them down to build them back up. Asking for their shoes and right. whatnot. You, were, you, were, you wanted to break them down, you know, break the image, break the denial, break all that stuff down, and then start the process of building the person back up. And as time went on and we learned, you know, especially if you were taught improperly, I, I said this before, you know, the purpose of the I and I really wasn't to humiliate someone. It was really to elicit from them information where you can then go show them that this is who you are, this is what you've done, and obtain from them some kind of investment right. To, right. In order for them to change. And how that investment may manifest itself could be emotionally, it could be sincerity. You know, either way, we just had to believe that you were serious about wanting to change your life. That's right. Okay. Um. So we set the, well, we say we, but the environment was set up so that a person could slowly, through incremental steps, start the process of changing the way they felt about themselves. For example, even Ken mentioned this, everything back in the day was a privilege. Writing home. That's right. Or even earning a pen. To write, or a pa- the piece of paper right, to right. write was a privilege. So you, you, your behavior had to be on point to earn these things. Now, how do you think you felt when you earned the privilege of getting the pen? Or you earned the privilege of getting the piece of paper? 
And then you earn the privilege of making a phone call. You earn the privilege of writing home. And you earned it through accomplishing various things, doing certain things. Your behavior had to be a certain way. Well, you felt good. Right. You felt great. Right. Something so that we would take for granted, having a piece of paper, a pen, a pencil, writing, making a phone call. But because these were things you were not able to do, you had to earn them in order to do these simple things. You had to change the way you were and conform to a certain set of values, right? That's right. And um, ideals. That you were going to take with you. That that you eventually were going to take with you, right? So we were starting that Michigan Proving Ground That's right. Right, that we talked about. And the change process was going to be initiated very slowly and very incrementally through these methods of you you want to you want a pen you got to do this you want a piece of paper you got to do this you want to then the privilege to write you got to do this you want to make a phone call you got to do this and then up and up and up you want to go home you got to do this that's right want family to visit you got, you got to you know so whatever the privileges were at time change the privileges change and so on and so forth but whatever they were you had to earn them. And when you do something to then earn something, that creates a natural good feeling. Okay? So what were we doing? We were not only proving to you, but forcing you to experience good feelings naturally through things you were doing and accomplishing on your own. Okay? As I'm talking, you're gonna you're hearing the secret. I always call it a secret. It's really no secret, but since people say, hey, how do I, how do I improve my self-esteem? I say, okay, it must be a secret because Because everybody asks? Because everyone asks. You don't know. Okay. So, but as I'm talking, I'm revealing what it is. Okay. So the person is doing things that is making them feel better about themselves these small things where someone on the outside will, would look at it and say, oh, that's, those are so inconsequential. But they're, but they're not based on the environment where I'm at. This is a big deal. Okay? So we take that same concept of accomplishing those small incremental goals. There's that big word. Don't forget it. Keep it. Just sit it over to the side. All right. Because that's like the key to the master lock. That okay. word. Okay? These small little goals. Okay, and we're we're but without you knowing it, we're getting you in the habit of what setting goals and accomplishing them. You wanna you wanna write home? Yeah, I wanna write home. I wanna write my parents, my spouse, my children. So you do what you got to do to accomplish that goal, right? And you feel good. And we point out or we ask, how does it feel now that you're writing your children, you're writing your parents? You oh, oh I, I love it. It feels great to earn that privilege. We're giving you a taste of what it feels like to set a goal, accomplish it, and then experience it, how it feels. Because once you move out of the treatment setting and all of these made-up little goals that we've created for the treatment setting, you're going to take that same concept and apply it outside. So... When you're getting ready to leave, let's say, residential treatment as an example, and what are, the thing, what are some goals you're going to have? Well, I want to get a job. I need to get a job. Well, when you go out and you 
find a job, how do you feel? You feel good. That's right. Your self-esteem goes sky high. You feel confident. Wow, I set a goal to find a job, and I accomplished it. What else do you need as you progress through the through this treatment experience, this recovery experience? I need a place to live. I need some housing. And you find that. You accomplish that in some way, shape, or form. Again, you feel good. I accomplished something. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the day and still even today, we make you save some money. You know, we set like a little bar for you, you know, a certain dollar amount for you to save. And you do that. That feels good. Now, there was a time I couldn't save a dime. All my money went to, you know, negative things. So now you're taking that same goal-setting process and these are necessary goals for for you know, for living and, and and experiencing life, taking them out of the treatment setting and now into the outer world, the society, and just duplicating them. But it's just different goals. Mm-hmm. And then the goals that you have start to then get bigger and bigger. I want to improve my education. I want to, you know, go up the ladder. In my in in the in the job that I have, I want to I want to you know rise through the organization. I want to I want to get a car. Um, I want to, you know, get a, you know find the the woman or the significant other that's that's for me. I want to have a family one day. You know all of these things. And as you time goes on and you find yourself accomplishing these things. Little do you know, as you're doing that, you're building. That's right. On, it's like building blocks. Your confidence and your self-esteem. Believing okay? in yourself. Believing in yourself. Else. That it does not mean, by the way, that there aren't things that you still need to conquer. For example, right? One of the things that we try and conquer in the residential setting is people's fear of talking in front of groups. So we. We try and deal with that through the, ver- pe- the various meetings people can talk, you know, stand up in front of people and talk to and conquer that fear of, you know, speaking in front of uh, other other people, groups of people. And, yeah, I think we told the story. I mean, me talking in front of 250 people That's right. where my leg was shaking and, mm-hmm. you know, then it gets to the point where they have to, you know, push you off stage, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because after a couple of months, you know, you're like, wow, I can do this, right? No so, problem. You know, it, it's it's a good thing to see when someone comes in and, you know, they're afraid to stand up and talk in front of the family. And then, you know, two months later, you know, their hand goes up first and they're standing up elaborating or speaking in seminar or, or what have you. And to see the change in the confidence and the self-esteem grow in an area where they may have felt insecure or they had a fear. Okay. But they've conquered it. They set a goal and they've conquered it. And it's gratifying as a provider to see them feel, you can see it on them, sure. feel good. You can see the confidence and the esteem oozing out of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's our reward when we see that, at least mine. Yeah, you know no, I, mean? I, I completely agree. It's uh, And even something I guess some people might look at as small as, like you just mentioned, speaking in front of groups. Mm-hmm where we will have clients come in who definitely have a fear of speaking in front of large groups. It's as clear as day when they first come in and you could walk into the facility five months later 
And not only are they speaking in front of a group, they're running a seminar, mm-hmm. teaching a group of people something. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, to be able to witness that, the progress up to that point uh, is something that's incredibly special. And it's that ties right into kind of the whole theme, which is why you're talking about it. Just watching somebody grow with the confidence that they have in themselves, their self-esteem, because whether or not the individual wants to admit it, more often than not, coming through these doors, you're not feeling very good about yourself. Obviously, right. And you're not, you know, you're feeling like you you may not be good enough to accomplish things or accomplish goals. And hearing people talk about that just seems unattainable. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're in that position, you don't even notice you're accomplishing those things yourself. Mm -hmm. And it takes your counselor or your peer or group to say, wow, man, this is night and day from two months ago. And right. it really gives that person an opportunity to step back and say, wow, yeah, I actually probably wouldn't have done that two months ago. Mm-hmm. And and it all is cyclical at that point. And then they start getting more and more confident and receiving more feedback like that. And It starts to feed itself. That's right. So <clears throat> this is why when I say it speaks to that it's not rocket science, it's really simple, is, you know, when a person does want to ask me, well, hey, how do I improve myself? Look, the real key is, this is why I actually put the goal over to the side, because that's the master key, mm-hmm. is setting goals and accomplishing them. That's what increases, improves, starts the process of your self-esteem and self-confidence rising. Doing something, saying I'm going to do this, and setting about the process of, of accomplishing it. And boy, when you when you accomplish it, the feeling you get is better than any, you know, unnatural high that you've ever experienced. Okay? But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It has to keep going. So even though you say, hey, I want to accomplish this, and then you get there, you have to have another goal. And it can be in any area. It doesn't have to go up and, you know, in the up direction. It can go sideways and, you know, it can go any direction except down, of course, in terms of things that you might be interested in that you want to achieve, accomplish, or experience. That may take a that may take work, that may take a process, but it's something that you put out there. Like the carrot has to always be out in front of you. That's right. And when you accomplish one of those carrots, that's when the natural high comes. That's when the self-esteem continues to grow and build. And that's really the secret. So there's a process of getting it, and then there's a process of keeping it. You can't sit on your laurels. Oh, I got the job. Okay, and then boom, that's it. Well, after a while, the job becomes what? It becomes a necessity of life. You know, you know, yeah. work becomes a necessity of life. So then what? Now that you got the job and you've been working, then what? That's it. No more. No, there's nothing else for you to accomplish. No more goals for you to set. No. The goals are endless. It's, it's endless. So it's getting it and keeping it, constantly setting them to different goals. And by the way, even after you, quote, unquote, leave the treatment setting, the goals don't don't have to be magnificent and large. They can be very small goals. You know, I want to take care of the laundry today. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I want to get it all done. Actually, that's a large goal, by the way. And... You know how good it feels when you know you got that very last load out of the dryer and it's all done and the and the hampers are all empty. 
So something as small as that. Good feeling. Know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. All right. So self-esteem and self-confidence, it's very important that we, as providers, let our clients know the mechanisms for obtaining it, getting it, and what they have to do to keep it because we can't allow anyone to walk out of the door or, you know, step into the the the, the next cycle of their treatment experience and, and still not know, hey, or either, A, not have increased their level of confidence and self-esteem, because if that's the case, I believe that we, we've kind of failed them. And if, if that has occurred, then, B, them not know what they need to do in order to do that. One of the two has to happen, and it's our job to make sure that it does happen. So that's all I got. That's pretty my, good. That's my seminar. It's pretty good. I'm off the monad now. I appreciate everything that was said, but no, I think that's good. I think we nailed it. You nailed it. And I think sometimes this particular topic can be... Maybe I don't I don't know if underestimated is the term or just not given enough weight for its value in recovery um, because it's rarely talked about in isolation like by itself it just usually goes hand in hand with yeah. something else yeah but it is important to acknowledge it by itself because having self esteem or the confidence to be able to to attack recovery mm-hmm. by itself can make or break you mm-hmm. so I think it's it's great that we were able to isolate that in the show. And also that ultimately, as we started out by saying that everything that you do, say or what have you, or accomplish or not accomplish, speaks to how you feel about yourself. Yeah. No words have to come out your mouth. You don't have to be asked anything. Someone can just take a look at your whole existence and say, no, that person feels good about themselves just by looking at what they do, what they've accomplished, how they carry themselves, and so on and so forth. And you can also say the opposite by taking the same view of another person yep. if what they show shows you that. So to me, it's very it's very important when you strip down all of the when I say fluff, I'm not I'm not negating the importance of all the other things that are important to recovery. But when you strip down the fluff and you get right down to the skeleton, so to speak, it's how do you feel about yourself now as compared to when you first came in or first, say, you know, got on the recovery train? Four months later, six months later, one year later, how do you feel about yourself? I feel good about myself. Well, there's a reason why that has happened. It's not because you just sat there for 12 months taking in information. You had to have done something, done things to get yourself to feel that way. That's right. All right, now I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Well done. Well said. We do have uh, we do have some callers on hold, okay. so we'll look forward to our next segment. Uh, we appreciate those of you who are on hold and being patient with us. We see you, and we are going to get back to you on the other side of this break.
Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, and recovery. Our recovery support time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, or recovery. 
You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. on recovery 646-564-9909 is the number we're now into our recovery support time let's go to the phones what do we got let's go to Todd from Redwood City Todd welcome thank you um, the question I have is uh, why is there such a disparity uh, between you know men and, and women in treatment um I notice not only in treatment, but like AA meetings and, and so forth, um, men far outweigh women. So this question was asked, uh, what was it, Mr. Producer, maybe a couple of months ago by a, a, female, uh, a female caller? Yeah, maybe even less than that. Okay. Probably uh, three to four weeks ago. And you tried your best to be politically correct. Yes. So, <clears throat> so will you attempt the same thing again? Well, I'm just going to answer the question. I think we answered it, uh, you know, properly. With, I believe with, so. With, with the call before. So, in general, women are underrepresented in treatment, in all facets of treatment, all modalities, residential, outpatient, um, support groups, like you said, in AA, AA, et cetera. To give you an example, when I was a resident up at Swan Lake in Daytop, it's a 250-bed facility, and out of the 250, there were only 60 women, okay? And so they were outnumbered three, three to one, right? That's the right math, three to one? I believe so. Okay. So the reason for that is women, there was two reasons. One, more often than not, they had children. 
which made it very difficult for them to go like go into residential treatment or other type of treatment modalities because there was no one to watch the children. They didn't want to lose their children and so on and so forth. So this kind of extended and forced them to stay longer in the addictive lifestyle. The second reason, which is not too uh, comfortable, is that women had more means, M-E-A-N-S, of staying out there and supporting their addiction. And so, you can uh, uh, read between you can read between the lines on that one. Yes, I can. I, I get okay. that. <laughs> right. So uh, that, those, those two combined traditionally have explained the, the disparity of why women are underrepresented. So how can I guess how can we get the message to more women out there to, you know what I mean? Well, that's a great question. One of the issues is that, you know, they have what they call women and children programs. So a a mother who has a child can go into treatment, and if it's a child under five, they can bring the child with them. Um, But it's very difficult if the child is over five to, you know, if, if a family member is unwilling to take the child while the parent is in treatment or, you know, most mothers are unwilling if there's no father present. You know, there's a whole bunch of circumstances that, you know, cause the the woman, especially if they have children, to not be able to get into the treatment system. But the women and children's programs was one way to try and address that. The problem is, is that they refuse to fund it. Right, because you're feeding more mouths and so forth and so on, right? Yeah, it costs more money, but guess what? It's one of those pay you know pay me now and pay me later type things. Well, you don't fund it now. Guess what? Uh, the woman is going to stay out there longer, okay? Is going to use up more public services, i.e., either in jail or the hospital or you know et cetera. Um, so you're going to spend way more money on that side when it'd be less cheaper to provide a treatment alternative. Interesting. They learned this the hard way. The powers that be, I should specify. Yeah, well, I think there should be, you know, something uh, to be said about you know spreading that message and getting that message yes. out there. Cause, like you mentioned, it is uh, an, a, a misrepresented uh, population that, that could use the help. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, thank agree. you for answering my question. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to Manuel holding on in San Francisco. Manuel? Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, Manuel, before before you ask your question, um, are you a Giants fan? Well, of course. Okay. Well Mr. done. Mr. Producer, we want to flush well him. Well done. Flush well him, flush him right away. If I had but, the applause button on my finger, there would be a, a strong round of applause right now. Thank you, sir. Thank you, uh, sir. Born and raised. Okay. Well, <laughs> let, let me see if there's a way I can, I can get you out of the All right. Well, here. <laughs> all right. All right. So pretty One much, I um I listened to your seminar that you that you gave out this whole time, and um it already helped me. I kind of like kind of threw me off my original question because. My my biggest problem was I would get my cool I get a cool little job and I'd start go back to school 
And then I'm a chronic relapser, so I'd always mess mess up again. But my problem was I wasn't making those small goals that you were just talking about. You know what I'm saying? And um, even the things that I was I were doing, my perception was wrong because, like you said, doing the laundry was a goal, but I didn't look at it that way. You know what I mean? Yes. So that everything you said already kind of really helped me. So let's just go back. To, I'm still in treatment right now. Um, my I help out around the house, and I have to take I have, I have to make sure, um, help out and make sure people's needs not not their wants but needs are met for 25 other residents. And I'm kind of to the point to where I'm going to be leaving in a few months, hopefully, or something like that. And I'm losing track of my my time, kind of thing. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to find that that balance. I'm having a hard time to where I feel like I'm emotionally drained or stressed out more than I should be. You know? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, guess what? Yeah, that's how life is. Now, it's designed that way. So okay. you're in a position of authority within the structure of the mm-hmm. residential setting, I'm guessing. And so you're, you know, you're, 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 you're advanced in terms of your length of time in the treatment setting. And your position has a lot of responsibilities. And yes. simultaneous to that, you also have to be taking care of yourself, your emotions, your needs, and so on and so forth. Okay. Well, that is absolutely great practice mm. for what life is going to be on the outside. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> I just so, needed to hear it again, so I think. So the question you have to ask yourself on a daily basis is mm-hmm. when you do a daily, I, uh, I would like to recommend a daily reflection, especially at this point in your in your recovery process, is, okay, okay how did I, A, not only handle my responsibilities, but also take care of myself today. Okay. You can do both. You just have to find a mechanism to make sure that it happens. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I just got to I just got to I just got to learn a certain way to balance it off better. Yes. Yes. Okay. Cuz I mean and, and you know what I have I have I kind of somewhat mainly when I look at it as, as a job. Um, as soon as I'm on the floor and until I go off the floor and then when I'm off the floor I look at it as I clocked out and that's like me time. But yes. by the end of the night, I'm so tired and drained that usually uh, I, I used to when I first got here I used to like journal a lot more and I feel like I um, do you know just just little things to, to get me through the day. But you know um, one thing you did talk about that also helps me is I learned that I generally I, I care about people more than I thought I did because it, throughout my addiction and that's that that um, that spark that you see in other people that's what keeps me going as well. So mm-hmm. the job yeah. the, the the job that I do it really it fits me well. I'm just you know I'm just I'm just getting that stressed out point. I need someone to talk to. <laughs> well, you did you did do one thing for us. You added a new phrase that I hadn't heard before to the lexicon of of recovery. You called yourself a chronic relapser. Mm-hmm. You ever heard that, Mr. Producer? You ever heard that saying? I've heard that. Okay. Yes, I, I have. I, it's the first time I've heard it. Well, we hope oh. that you put an end to that. Oh, of, well, of course. That's, that's 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 my goal, and that's one of the big goals. But in order to attain that goal, I have to set those small goals, like you were talking small about. Small little goals, absolutely. Mm-hmm. One day at a time. All right. Sir. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And hopefully, uh, the Giants finish in last place. But thanks for calling. Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye bye. But isn't it true, Mr. Producer, that the Giants, after winning the World Series the last few years, I can't even believe I'm saying this. I'm gagging as if the words are coming out of my mouth. But the next, the following year, they usually end up in the cellar. Uh, yeah, they've gone every 
year after a championship not even making the playoffs. Yeah, so I'm fully hoping that that is the case. That's what we're on our way to, unfortunately. Is what it's looking like, but... <laughs> All right, on cue, let's hit the X-Files. Got a couple of good ones. Yes, I just... I have to ask this question because it's it, it's almost like the nerve of the question is, you know, like how dare you? But I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a person wrote it, so I'm gonna ask a question. During I'm I'm gonna leave out the person's name. During recovery, is there space? Listen carefully now. Is there space for responsible use? And then in parentheses, it says use versus abuse. No, there isn't. What does that mean, responsible use? Responsible use of heroin? Responsible use of methamphetamine? I need to know what happened. I just left a screen, a call, I come back, and the host is up in arms. What are we What are we getting all excited about over the, here? The question this gentleman has uh during recovery is there space for responsible use and in parentheses he has use versus abuse so i guess basically what he's saying if i'm not abusing it and i'm in recovery is it okay that i use it well i can tell you that's that is creative and as uh addicts we can get yeah right, we, we can, can become, often get creative we can get wordsmithy <laughs> no i haven't no, but the I answer haven't is no you can't like that Look, do you want to be in recovery or not? You want to use, use. If you don't want to use, you're in recovery. Choose. Yeah. Trying, trying to walk the fence. Mm-hmm. Who are you kidding with that? I don't understand. Yeah, we can. You're uh, only fooling yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah, we can't. We can't have that. Now, here's a question of controversy, and I think we dealt with this months ago. In the early days of our show, so nothing wrong with touching on it again. With the onset of marijuana legalization, are you, um, I'm sure the question isn't to me specifically, but I guess it's to the show, are you an advocate for or against? Okay. And I'm guessing he left off at the end an advocate for or against marijuana legalization. Right. And my answer, at least for me, you can answer for yourself, Mr. Producer. Sure. My answer will be the same as it was many months ago and the months before that and the months before that. It's two. I don't care either way. It is irrelevant. Okay. You care to elaborate? We treat people who are addicted to drugs, whether they are legal or illegal. It's irrelevant to us whether they're legalized or not legalized. There's a lot of legal drugs out there that people are addicted to. There are more people addicted to legal drugs than illegal drugs in the United States of America. Okay. It's irrelevant. Alcohol is legal. Prescription medications that are 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 that are abused are you know legal legally prescribed right you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely so it's not just about street drugs which quote unquote marijuana is 
Yeah, I think I said before that it has. Uh, I think we can all agree who who actually read that it has some medicinal uses. Okay, for legitimate people, not the people hanging around the the uh, the San Jose dispensary <laughs> who's got an, an ankle sprain, right? Or their toenail fell off and they need a prescription for all these fancy named. Uh, Ailments? Uh, no, the fancy named um, types of marijuana. Oh, yes. The strands, if you will. The strands, yeah. I mean, back in my day, it was only two. It was a regular and something else. <laughs> but it doesn't, it's it's to me, it's a, it's a fool's argument. It's irrelevant to me as a person who want, helps people come out of addiction, wants people to not be addicted to drugs. I don't care whether it's a legal substance or an illegal substance. It's irrelevant to me. We Anyone who walks through our doors, they can be addicted to a legal substance, and they're still addicted, and they want help because it's taken over their life. So it makes, okay. you know, it, it's, for me personally, it doesn't make a difference. They can legalize whatever they want. It's not going to stop people from abusing it. Or make it any, uh, I mean, the only likely, one of two things will happen. Things will remain status quo in terms, you know, so nothing will go up, nothing will go down. Or it'll get worse. Can it get better, meaning that less people will become addicted? Anything's possible. Yeah, I, um... There is there is one there is one benefit that I might speak to. There is one benefit that the absurd amount of money that they might be spending on enforcement. You know what I mean? Could okay. be could be redirected towards better things. Sure. So other than that, but go ahead, I interrupted you. No, I agree with that. I I think as far as people who are arguing for it or against it, the whole legalization aspect to me and I hear the argument all the time because we're talking about either taking the crime out of it or the deterrent or whatever it is. I don't know if I know anybody who either smokes marijuana or doesn't smoke marijuana simply because it's either legal or illegal. Right. Uh, those who are going to smoke are going to smoke it whether or not it's legal or not. Right. And simply due to the fact that it's not legal, is not going to stop somebody. Right. And then the people who aren't smoking it aren't not smoking it just because it's illegal. They're right. not smoking it for a number they're not, of reasons. They're not interested. Right. Right, exactly. So I'm with you in the fact that I don't care, and I guess if I if I really had to make a statement, if I had a gun to my head, I'd say go ahead and legalize it. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, I could see the resources that are spent Fighting that could be spent fighting something else, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah. So I mean, I would say go ahead and legalize it, and go ahead and take your cut, government. That's what you do. You heard it here first. Our producer is for the legalization of marijuana, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be playing that clip back every week. That's it. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the phones, and we'll pick up on Paige. From Redding, California. Paige, welcome. Hi. Hi. Um, so my question is, 
I've just recently by a psychiatrist, which I think, I don't know if I've talked to you about it yet, but, um, and I don't totally want to believe it, but I've been diagnosed bipolar or whatever, right? And um, I just now started these medications, and I'm on like three of them. Um, and they changed the way I feel, and I'm, and it's making me feel, I don't know, like I feel like I'm doing something wrong because they're changing the way I feel. I feel like I'm sort of relapsing. So this I, is kind of this is kind of inherent in addicts that they hold themselves to sometimes a very unrealistic standard. And so if you've been diagnosed, whether you believe it or not believe it, I'm not going to speak to that's for you. But let's say you've been diagnosed as being bipolar and you've been prescribed meds to help deal with the bipolar issue. And if you're just starting taking them, or and there might be multiple meds you might be taking, usually within that first two to three week period, because it's new medication, it does act on the brain, okay, you're going to feel the effect of it. And But after a period of time, once the body gets adjusted and used to it, that's going to go away. You're not going to experience that anymore. It's just the okay. initial... It's the initial uptake into the system and the brain, you know, the, the how it's supposed to work to actually help you in the brain, et cetera, um, is what you're you're feeling. It's 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 not to get you high. It's not to you know alter your moods and so on and so forth. Or in a way, it is supposed to alter your moods because if you're bipolar, then you know it's trying to <laughs> balance you out a little bit. But that's a little deeper discussion. But no, you're not relapsing. Because you know you feel a little bit different, but uh, okay. definitely if two months go by and every time you take it you're still feeling a little bit differently, that then then the question to ask is wait a second is the dose too high? You know what I mean? Okay. But I'm not I just a wanted your opinion on it. I mean that's kind of how I felt. Like I know I'm taking it for a, a, a specific reason, and it's not mm-hmm. it's not me seeking it out or whatever. But it's just you know they say that if you if you're taking something that changes the way you feel, you know, I don't know. I've never had to take medication before, and so I thought I'd bring this to you and see what you had to say. Well, that's my opinion. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Give it some time, and you won't. You really shouldn't notice any any difference in terms of after that those initial two or three weeks. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That's usually how it is. People are taking, uh, when they first start taking um, any form of psychotropic meds, and you know, the effect it may have on the brain, you feel a little bit different, or you, or you may feel an effect Absolutely. from it. Um, I've, I've never taken any, but I'm just surmising here, so don't quote me on any of this. But I, I guess whatever the effect is that makes you feel different, you know, you might think that well, that's. Make well anything that makes you feel different. You might think, oh, that makes me feel high, or what have you. When that may not really be the case. Right. You're not a doctor, but you did say at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Uh, uh, no, I didn't. Otherwise, <laughs> there'd be questions to answer and some serious confrontation. Uh, let's go to Gene uh, from Oregon. Hi. How are you this today? Good. How are you? 
doing well. Um, I had a question. I'm actually in a treatment program, and I'm working on transitioning out. Um, mm-hmm. I'm working on my financial budget. I've got a part-time job lined up, and I'm going to go into transitional housing. Um, are there any other things that I should focus on um, Yeah, in my plan to transition out? No. Oh. <laughs> short, short, sweet, keep it nice and neat and narrow and this way it keeps all of the unnecessary business out of the way. You got it tailored nice and sweet. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just focus on those things. Okay. Because when you, when, when, once you accomplish those things, and, and let's say you move into the transition, then the mm-hmm. next stage of your plan is going to be what you're going to be pursuing. Right. And it's just and is there, is there all... like a go, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. Oh, is there like a, a typical amount of time that one would stay in transitional housing if everything else is kind of, um, you know, under control and, you know, job and everything? No, no, no oh, okay. it's, you know, it, the term itself is, you know, I mean, in today's world, we still call it transition, but, you know, sometimes people are there permanently for various reasons. Sometimes people stay there six months. Sometimes people stay there a year, you know, because right. they use it as a means where they can really save up some money, especially if you live in a high-cost area, you know, mm-hmm. um, a housing area. So you might have to stay longer in the transitional housing to save money. But so there's no no there's no assigned time frame. It's whatever whatever is the right amount of time for you and your plan that you okay. have. That's that right. great. Thank you so much for all your help. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, I thought you were going to uh, comment on the way I said Oregon. East, our East, our East, yeah. East Coasters say I, Oregon. I heard it, and that might I be, just... That might be a com- Just in fairness, that might be a combination of the Jamaican-British-New York accent coming out. When I say Oregon, but look, that's the way the word is spelled: O R E G O N, right? Listen, if that was your argument for the English language, you'd be speaking sentences that we would no longer be able to understand. How, how do you pronounce it? Oregon. So you don't pronounce the second syllable. Oregon, Oregon, Oregon. Oregon, Oregon, or a coming Oregon, or a left the building, Oregon, man. So why isn't it spelled O R E G A N if it's Oregon or I N? It's it's O N on O N on Oregon. Yeah, no, I I hear you. You should uh, take it up with the, uh, the whatever state, uh, the state. whatever board <laughs> handles the English language and its enunciation. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go back to the X Files. You can do some screening. Uh, Eric from Oakland wants to know why is it important to open up about issues during treatment because if you leave the doors of your treatment setting without your issues explored, identified resolved, accepted, whatever it it needs to be so that they no longer impact your behavior and decision making and your life at large okay, then you're just setting yourself up for a relapse. You cannot you cannot escape not dealing with things that impact you and 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 create an environment where you you have made negative decisions. 
You cannot waste your time in a treatment setting by not bringing those issues to the fore, addressing them, looking at them, holding them up. What do I need to do differently? How do I need to address this? Man, when you're in treatment, it's work in recovery. You can't escape dealing with whatever it is. You can't escape dealing with whatever it is that makes you up. Whatever your past, your present, and whatever you see for your future, you can't escape dealing with that. And too many people think, well, I'm just going to touch on this, touch on that, and not really dig for the real stuff that's really at the root, the core of, you know, what caused them to end up in the life. And you all know what I mean by when I say the life. All right, how are we doing on time, sir? Okay, uh, let's go to David from San Francisco. And David, before you say a word, I need to know, are you a Giants fan? Yes, sir. Loud and proud, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, how unfortunate. <laughs> All right, sir, how can we help you? <laughs> um, I'm in a treatment program, and I just experienced the loss of my um, ex-girlfriend, who's still out there, to an overdose, and I'm unable to process it. I'm somewhat stressing about it, so what do you suggest I do? Just to be clear, when you said loss, you didn't mean that she passed away, but... Is, is that is that that's not what you yeah, meant, correct? She, yeah, well, no, she OD'd and died. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry to hear that. That's thank you. And I'm just having a, a trouble processing it, and I'm st- starting to stress about it. And I'm just wondering what you would suggest I do. All right. My suggestion is going to be that you allow. You allow yourself to experience the stages of grief. Okay. And don't and you don't try and circumvent them. You allow mm-hmm. them to happen. Do you know what the stages of grief are? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. I'm going to name them, and you know, I don't want you to say anything, but after okay. I'm done, you can tell me if you have identified with any of them so far. Okay? Okay. So... There's shock and denial. There's pain and guilt. There's anger and bargaining. There's depression and loneliness. There's an upward turn. There's a reconstruction of life without the loved one. And there's acceptance and hope. Okay, um, those are what we I've call gotten, like the seven stages of grief. So, which do you identify with any of those yet? Yes, I do. I, I believe I'm up to the. I, I was shocked at first, and it slowly started to sink in. I just found out this last Saturday, and okay. I'm already up to anger. You know, okay. I'm, 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 I'm angry at her. Okay. You know, and um, and that's that's okay. It that's is real. Right? I was, I was asking people today, a couple of close friends, about that. I said, I don't know why I'm angry now, you know. And I, I'm considered, I'm what you consider a stuffer. Right. And when the feelings start to come up, I just kind of, like, you know, change my thoughts. And I just feel like that's not allowing me to process and go through it. Exactly. But I have went through the first beginnings, and, and I am up to, like, the anger stage. Okay. So you allow that to, allow that to be... 
Don't try and, you know, not be angry. You know what I mean? You can talk mm-hmm. about being angry at her about what happened. It's okay. All right. You can't, you know, okay. you can't escape the natural and the natural process. Your body's built to handle it, by the way. You're built to deal with loss, deal with grief, deal with losing someone. You just have to give yourself the chance and the opportunity to experience the feelings and allow your body and your mind and your heart to go through it. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll and you, continue to and do you, that. And you, and you will get you will get there on the other. You will get to the end. And when I say end, I don't mean that there is an end because when you lose somebody that's close to you, someone you love, someone you care about, that there's always going to be a piece of your heart that's that that aches. You know what I mean? Yes. But you yourself. Go ahead. Well, I'm just gonna. I was just gonna. You know, I. I, Before I went into recovery, I I was in jail and I hadn't seen her for the past like eight or nine months, and and just Mm -hmm. killing me the fact that I'll never get to show her. How how well I'm doing, and I just I'm having a very hard time, like I say, accepting any of that, and just I mean I'll trust in the feelings, you know, that I that I'll be able to get through it because there's no going back for me as far as where I'm at in my recovery. Mm-hmm. But um, I just like I say feel pretty numb about it. Besides, like I say, besides the anger and. The, the the shock, you know. I I think maybe since I found out Saturday, it might even still be just settling in. Mm-hmm. Now you know anger, even though anger is one of the stages that you experience during the grief process, but that the the feeling of anger is not the root feeling. Okay. You know what I'm saying? There's mm-hmm. hurt. There's uh, rejection, i.e. And and be careful with this one because sometimes people really overlook this one, especially in a circumstance like this where someone has OD'd, or oftentimes where someone has committed suicide. The behavior, the action that the person did that caused their death, okay, is almost like a rejection of you. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so yeah. it's really about get you know trying to pay attention to, yeah, I'm angry, but what's what's really the source of my anger? I know I'm hurt. Is there anything else? Do I feel rejected by her because of what she did, and as a result, she's no longer here? So you really got to get into it, talk about it, and through time, you'll work your way through those steps, and through time, you'll be able to not change what happened, but you'll be able to change how you feel about what has happened. Okay. Okay? Yes, I understand that. <clears throat> That's the ultimate goal. Okay. All right. And all right, so this is, It's all pretty much a natural thing then, right? You have to just let it take its course. Don't try and circumvent it. Okay, because that's the other thing I try to do is just analyze, 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 and, you know, I keep coming up to blanks and, you know, then just be frustrated. And, and it seems like I start to take it out on my peers. Okay. I'll just okay. leave you with this. I'll leave you with this, and you can take it for what it's worth and interpret it however you want. Uh, you, when you said that, well, she'll never see me, uh, you know, doing my thing, getting my act together, my answer mm-hmm. to that is yes, she will. Okay. Yes, she will. I hear you. 
I, I hear you. And don't be afraid right. to talk to her. Don't be afraid to talk to her. Okay. All right, and sir? one last thing before we close, if you have a moment, sure. is how do I get... Go ahead. Should I, um, like, I want to say bye, and I got an idea from somebody that they said maybe we can get, like, a healing balloon, I could write a letter to her, and we can just let it go. Would that, That's think gr- you that, do you think that would be healthy? I think it would be a great idea. It's really, if, if, you, if that's something that you feel would be helpful to you, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for the call. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. My loss is a tough one. And I had kind of interpreted it the way you did initially, lost, figuratively mm-hmm. speaking. But, yeah, that's that's definitely tough. He is going to, like you said, and I think you said it best, you've got to allow yourself to go through that process, man, yep. good, bad, or ugly. Old saying, you got to feel what you feel. All right, let me go quickly to Hillary from San Jose. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing good. First, um, I just want to say that my condolences and my sympathies go out to David, the last caller. Okay. Okay. And my question for you is, I am in a domestic violence relationship, and I am currently looking for a treatment facility. Mm-hmm. And my question is if you think a co-ed or an all-women's facility would be better for me. If I had my druthers, I would recommend a all-female facility. Okay, and why? Because more, more often than not, it's better for you to, or, or, or a, a woman that's coming out of a situation like that, to bond with other women first. Mm-hmm. Get herself back, her independent self back, and then, fo- you know, the focus is all on me. There's no, there's no guys there to remind me, distract me, and, and bring stuff up for me. I want to be able to deal with myself, and then from there, I can then move on. Okay, that makes sense. That would sense. be the so idea. Kind of, so kind of go through the healing process first and become stronger. Yes. And, yes. Then, okay. Women and helping then, other women heal, yes. Okay, so if I go to an all-women's facility and I don't get the level of treatment that I think I should get there, do you think I should go to, like, a behavior mod program? Ultimately, ultim- so the question you asked me, I said ideally, but ultimately you can – heal yourself and get treatment no matter where you go because it's really about you ultimately. Okay. Okay? All right. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. How much time we got, sir? You're at your nine-minute mark that okay. you requested. Okay. All right. So um, I wanted to take this. We're going to do our recap right now out of order and announce that my second grandchild was born Yes. Um, Saturday evening at 8.22 p.m. Yes. Coming in, weighing in a hefty 7 pounds and 15 ounces. Hey, we're almost 8 pounds one, there. One ounce from the heavyweight division. Woo! Okay. All right. Um, And uh, mother and child are doing fine. Um, grandma and grandpa are elated and happy for the Arrival of our second grandchild, both boys. Excellent. So I am building my testosterone team yes. slowly but surely. <laughs> yes. As I have been outnumbered the comeback. for years. <laughs> um, but uh, this song 
that we're going to close with is a tribute to uh, my daughter from myself and my wife. Excellently said. On behalf said. of her, doing, doing a great job giving birth. Excellently said. Beautiful, and congratulations to you, sir. And I'd like to extend a thank you to our entire audience, anybody who called in to listen or called in to participate, those who are following us, those who are tuning in and supporting us, we appreciate everything that you guys have done. The host wants to interrupt me here during my close. I forgot to just add, and the name is Josiah Layton Roach Warren. Josiah Layton Roach Warren. Welcome. Welcome to this world. Yep. So, again, uh, thank everybody. We wish you guys a great rest of the work week and happy weekend, and we look forward to speaking to you all next Tuesday.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.